Good to see you. I felt in the worship, um, God speak to me these simple words, fix your eyes on Jesus. And we did that, didn't we? In our prayers and our thanks, recalling his names, we focused on him. And God took me to uh, a scene, and it was of a tightrope walker. I don't know much about tightrope walking, except there's danger to your left and there's danger to your right. Somehow they balance on one thread. How? Well, they focus, they focus, they fix their eyes on one thing. And you may feel that life is caught between a rock and a hard place. There's danger to your left, there's trouble to the right. How are you going to navigate? And Jesus would say to you, fix your eyes on me. I had another scene of ballet. Uh, you might think, I might not know much about ballet, but I tell you I do. Uh, both my girls went to um, ballet lessons, but also my dad used to go to ballet every Saturday morning when I was growing up. Um, he played the piano, you see, in the, you know, ding, 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 and they all, um, pirouetting, spinning on the spot on, on a one foot. How do they do that? Well, you do see, don't you, their head going last, and it whips round because they're, they're focused on one point. They don't get giddy. And some of you, you may feel that life is spinning at the moment. You're spinning plates. You're spinning yourself through the tumble dryer of life. To mix my metaphors. And Jesus would say to you, you know, fix your eyes on me. You go to the opticians, don't you? I need to go to the opticians. Again, my glasses aren't quite as effective as they used to be. And what do glasses try and do? They try and address your focal point. Is it too long? Is it too short? Try and get it back into its natural position, and then you can see clearly, not just there, but here and over there as well. And I feel God would say, yeah, let me adjust your focal point now and fix your eyes on Jesus. And then you'll get perspective, and you'll see clearly. Anyway, that's not in my notes, it just came to me in the worship. So thank you for spurring that on as well in all your prayers. We're in the Psalms at the moment. We're going to look at Psalm 22 in a minute. You'll have it on your knee, but just by way of introduction first. The Psalms are about Jesus. Though not mentioned by name, Jesus is all over the Psalms. Often when you're in the Bible, you're doing a bit of time travel. I don't know if you're aware of that, hence the TARDIS picture behind me in a minute. But uh, a lot of the Psalms, you see, were written 3,000 years ago. Some are plus or minus 500 years, but, you know, 3,000 years ago. And as well as describing the composer's life, as well as outlining the experience of the nation, though, they also pointed forward to a coming Messiah, a future Christ. Often referred to in the Psalms like a king, an anointed king. Often referred to in Psalms as God's son but also as a servant, as a suffering servant. And sometimes what you read in the Psalms can appear like poetic license, really. But actually, in fact, they're prophetic pointers pointing forward from 3,000 plus or minus years ago. I was reading the other day, Psalm 45. It said this about the king. The king's throne will last forever and ever. Really? Well, this isn't, you see, an exaggeration of an earthly king. No, it's an expectation of a heavenly one who will reign forever. And then, 2,000 years ago, Jesus appeared and fulfilled everything that the Psalms and the rest of the Old Testament had anticipated. 
Okay, and now we're looking here, 2,000 years, 3,000 years. And the Christians, the first ones, saw Jesus in the Psalms. In explaining Jesus and his message, the New Testament writers referred to Psalms directly 75 times, more than any other book in the Old Testament. And there's other inferences to the Psalms as well throughout there. Now, some of the links aren't obvious. You might not come up with them on your own, but the Bible helps us out. So Paul, when he's writing to the church in Rome, in chapter 15, he quotes Psalm 18. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. And refers to Jesus with that verse. Really? What? How? They're not always obvious. So if anything, I'm led to believe... That, okay, we've got these 75 cross-references in our New Testament to the Psalms, but that probably is just the tip of the iceberg. Didn't those four young people do extremely well last week in, in bringing their insight on the Psalms, hey? Yeah? Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic, all four of you. I noted two of you as well. You drew out Jesus from the Psalms. Very well done. The others did well as well, but I was impressed by that, your handling of Scripture, you've been taught well. The Psalms, though, they don't just catalogue ahead of time the circumstances of Christ's life, but they help actually to unlock major theological themes. The writer to the Hebrews said this in chapter 5, quoting from Psalm 110. God says, you, referring to Jesus, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I haven't got time to unpack that. But that is then a theme that he develops throughout the rest of the chapters of his book. Keeps going back to it. And he rests it on that one verse from the psalm. Okay, where did they get that from? Well, lo and behold, Jesus identified himself very closely with the psalms. I've got a few examples behind me. I won't go through all of them. But take this one here, this second one here. Jesus was washing the feet of the disciples... Normally the servant's job, because they'd been dirtied from walking around in sandals all day. And Peter said, no, don't wash my feet, Jesus. I'm not worthy for that. And Jesus quoted Psalm 41. Unless I wash you, you have no part of me. And there are more. There are more quotes that Jesus came up with. If you look in your footnotes to your Bible, you'll see where he's quoting the Psalms in understanding his own life and his own ministry. Then having risen from the dead, Jesus then goes on a revision lesson walk. Some of you are revising for exams at the moment. Put your hand up if you're revising for exams. Put the other hand up if you should be revising for exams. Yeah, there we go. Some more hands there. Yeah, we go. Uh, well, fancy this as a revision technique. Jesus goes on a walk with two of his disciples, having risen from the dead. His, his identity at this moment, they haven't worked out. And as they walk along the road to a place called Emmaus, he's reminding them of all the things he's taught them the preceding three years. And this is what he says. I, I told you while I was with you, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, Old Testament part one, in the prophets, there and there, Old Testament part two, and in the Psalms. There was Jesus reminding them what he'd already taught them of where he, his resurrection and his death, was all in the Psalms. So there we go. We need the Psalms. Yes, we need the Psalms to get through tough times in life. Yes, we need the Psalms to learn to worship God appropriately. But we also need the Psalms 
to know Christ, to know him, to develop our relationship with him. I have to be honest, I do read the Psalms at least once a year, one a day, five months, you get through 150, but it's rare, I have to say, that I relate on that day to that Psalm. Emotionally, over, or no, almost half of the Psalms are laments or complaint songs, praying from a place of pain and perplexity. Some of you might be going through that at the level of a half in a 150, 75, 70, something like that. But I'm not. That's not been my experience. However, I've been persuaded that the Psalms are more about Jesus than they are about me. And that's helped me to understand them, to enjoy them, to use them, and to be trained by them. Don't get me wrong, I do have challenges in life, and I have used Psalms in that way, in that vein, many a time, but not necessarily to that frequency. Now, Psalm 22, it not only contains some of the most precise prophetic detail about Jesus' death on the cross that was to occur about a thousand years later, but... We can, I believe, confidently put the words of Psalm 22 into the mouth of Jesus himself. Yes, it was written by David, we're told in the notes at the beginning there, uh, but it does describe an experience beyond any that David experienced firsthand, as far as we know. David, we have no record of David being imprisoned and humiliated or tortured and killed, as this psalm depicts. When Jesus was hanging on the cross with his life painfully ebbing away, two of the few things that he said are found in Psalm 22. The very first verse of Psalm 22 he uttered, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness had covered the earth at three in the afternoon, and he cried that prayer. And then John tells us in chapter 19 that as he was dying, just before he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, he said this, it is finished. Echoing the last phrase of Psalm 22. Therefore, as I read Psalm 22, as we look at it together, don't imagine me reading it. Don't even imagine yourself reading it. Don't picture David or people from years ago. Imagine Jesus reading, saying this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day. But you do not answer by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. 
Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth, I was cast on you. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me. Strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions that tear their prey open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a pot's herd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise God. Heavenly Father, we just pray, help us to see Jesus. Help us to fix our eyes on him. Lord, we want to be those who turn to you, who revere you, and worship you. I pray, Lord, as we just unpack this a little bit this morning, that you will reveal, Holy Spirit, Jesus to our hearts. And you will instruct us in our prayer life, in our worship life. You will prepare us, Lord, for our future and to serve one another well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. There you go. It's a good one, isn't it? Hey, got a bit, you know, dramatic there. That's okay, isn't it? The psalm is divided into two contrasting parts. Hopefully, you've got a sense of that. The first part, up to verse 21, describes the darkest hour. And then from 22 onwards, the second part describes, in my words, the break of dawn. 
and we'll look at each in turn. So the darkest hour. Well, this, as you'd agree, has all the hallmarks of a lament psalm. You've got this heart-wrenching anguish, and you've got this desperate request, and it's all directed to God. It's not just expressed to nobody. It's to God in faith. In essence, I guess, it is a, a simple cry for help. You get that in verse 11. There's no one to help. Verse 19, come quickly to help me. Even the note at the beginning, to the tune of the doe of the morning. That word doe, some think, might be derived from the word help. So this is a help prayer, really. And this first part is, I would divide it into six sections. And it oscillates between, on one half, this painful plight. And on the other half, this dogged faith. So in terms of the pain, you've got verse 1, I'm forsaken. Then scanning down, verse 6, I am a worm. Then scanning down again to verse 12, I'm surrounded. But that's interleaved with this dogged faith, as I say. So in verse 3, it talks about, yet you are enthroned. Verse 9, yet you brought me out of the womb. And verse 19, but you, Lord, be not far from me. I'm you, I'm you, I'm you, growing in intensity and urgency. And to start with, I'd really love just to look at sections 3 and 5. So from verse 6 to 8 and then 12 down to 18. Just look at those two sections. That's why I've printed it out so you can get the overview as well as the detail here. The psalmist is describing the fact that he's despised and scorned. He's insulted and mocked, even with this evil irony. You said God would rescue you. Where's God then? You know, that kind of twist of the knife. And lo and behold... You might recognize this already. That is what happened to Jesus. We get it recorded by Matthew in chapter 27. He says this, those who passed by the, the crucified Christ hurled insults at him, just like it said, shaking their heads, just like it said, saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. And in the same way, we're told, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him everyone was mocking him he saved others they said but he can't save himself he's the king of israel let him come down now from the cross and then we'll believe in him he trusts in god let god rescue him now if he wants him i mean it's there it's the psalm right there that's what happened to our lord then looking down to verse 12 and 16 you've got these many violent enemies likened to these strong wild beasts You've got these bulls of Bashan, Bashan being a fertile plain where probably the beefiest looking livestock were bred. You've got these roaring lions in verse 13. You've got a pack of dogs that he comes to in verse 16. These, these, this feral kind of evil personified group dynamic of, of attack, of maliciousness, all directed at the psalmist. Well, that was fulfilled by Jesus. Whether it's the Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities, whether it's the baying crowd, whether it's the heartless, vicious soldiers, they all conspired to kill Jesus, having tortured him. Even verse 14, I think it is, I am poured out like water. Lo and behold, water gushed from Jesus as the soldier speared him in his side, evidence that he was dead. And, and similarly, verse 14, all my bones are out of joint. None of Christ's bones were broken, we're told. Even though the soldier was instructed, go and break the legs of Jesus. Well, he's already dead, so he didn't. He speared him. 
but his bones were dislocated. That's the consequence of crucifixion. That was the whole purpose of it, a way of bringing torturous pain. It wasn't invented back then, 3,000 years ago. They wouldn't have known that to write the psalm in that way. The desperate thirst of verse 15, my mouth is dried up, fulfilled by Jesus. John 19 records it. He said, I am thirsty. While he was on the cross, someone got some wine vinegar that was there for some reason and put a sponge in and put it on a stick and thrusted it up to Jesus. And I can't imagine it really quenched his thirst. He'd ever drunk vinegar. Verse 16 and 17, we've got it right there. They pierced my hands and my feet. What a prediction of the method of execution as Christ's limbs were nailed to the beams. But not only that, the humiliation of his, of his broken, beaten body displayed upright for all to see with voyeuristic pleasure. Described in this psalm, it happened. Verse 18 even, look at this. They divided my clothes among them, cast lots for my garments. If you don't know, John 19 says that happened to Jesus. When the soldiers crucified him, they took his clothes, they divided it into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. It was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. I mean, you could say, or maybe Jesus went through life knowing the scriptures and, and, and forcing his fulfillment of them. I don't think that hanging there on the cross, he was able to force these things. That someone would throw, roll dice for his underwear. It just gives us such a graphic insight into what Jesus was going through, more possibly than what the gospel accounts give us. But, you know, despite the physical horror of it, it was the spiritual abandonment that was hell for Jesus. This verse 1, infamously, the darkest verse, I would say, in all of the Psalms, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's being attributed here to the darkest hour in all of history. I know we watched a film a year ago, but that wasn't it. The darkest hour was when Christ died for us. When Jesus became a curse for us. You see, at that moment, God the Son was abandoned by God the Father. Why? Because Jesus, the sinless one, took our sin upon himself. And so, the judgment of the Holy One, as he's described, I think in verse 3, was redirected from us to Jesus, the afflicted one, as he describes himself in verse 24. The punishment, you see, that we deserved of being forsaken by God, understandably, quite rightly, for our sin, fell instead on Jesus. You know, it should have been you and me crying out verse 1 when we go and meet our maker. But Jesus went there for us so that we don't have to cry out verse 1 when we meet our maker. You know, friends, uh, as believers in Jesus, we're not immune, we know that, from pain 
But those in Christ will never experience the horror of Psalm 22. We will never be forsaken by God to this extent. We know the familiar words of Romans 8, therefore there is now no condemnation, no forsakenness for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why we're in Christ Jesus. And part one, I guess, ends there, really, at a cliffhanger at verse 21. And the silence is broken by a new tune. The blues has been replaced by anthemic rock, which is the genre of heaven, of course. If well, will it not be? No, or maybe it won't be. Uh, but the blues has gone. The minor key has resolved to its major relative. The lament is gone and the party has begun. The depths of despair are over and there's an eruption of praise. We're not told how in the psalm. We're not told. But we're reassured that God has in fact intervened. That the forsaken one has been vindicated. That the fortunes have now been reversed. Look at verse 24. It concludes this. For God, he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. That little pause, that little gap, that paragraph break between 21 and 22 is just bursting. He's just pregnant with, with the knowledge that Christ rose from the dead. That Christ ascended to heaven. That Christ has begun his eternal reign. It's all there in that pause. God's deliverance of the one, Jesus, has resulted in the good news for the many. The promise at the end of verse 26, just scanning down to that, is that human hearts would live forever. Human hearts. Because of this one vindication. Human hearts, plural, many of us, will live forever. How is that? How is that when our hearts are so hard towards God? How is that when they harbor, let's be honest, so much evil in every single one of us? Well, it's because Jesus was forsaken that we can be forgiven. Hallelujah. It's because Jesus was laid in the dust of death that we can be raised to life eternal. And Jesus is good news to all people and all nations and all positions and all generations. Just scanning through from 22 onwards, you see all the nations included in the benefit of this victory. All you descendants of Israel and Jacob, it says in verse 23. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth, all the families of the nations... All positions, the poor will eat and be satisfied, it said in verse 26. And the privileged, the rich of the earth, will also feast, it says in verse 29. All generations in the future, verse 30, even a people yet unborn, that includes us, we were yet born 3,000 years ago. As well as the dying and the already dead, those who go down to the dust who can't keep themselves alive. There'll be representatives of all those types at the feast of Jesus. Celebrating with him. 
You know, the church is, is meant to celebrate that diversity. It's meant to, I think, also facilitate that kind of diversity. We should enjoy our range, our differences, because Jesus made it possible. It's to illustrate the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. It works for me, a Brit of middle age, but it works for every nation around the world. It works for every generation and life position. And somehow we're to, we're, to, we're to encourage that amongst us, church. We're to get over ourselves, prefer one another, be mindful of other cultures and backgrounds and languages, to demonstrate the worthy inheritance of this Jesus who was vindicated, who was not forsaken. You know, everything about this second part, this last third, really, of the psalm has changed, except I suggest one thing, and that's the singer. I'm still convinced that Jesus is singing part two of this psalm that starts, I will declare your name to my people. You can think, well, is that the worship leader? Is that the narrator? Is that the leaders of the day? No, I think Jesus is saying, I will declare your name, God my Father, to my people, the church. In the assembly, that's us, his people. I, as Jesus, will praise you, Father God. That was my hunch. I'm glad I'm not left only to my hunches because they're not always accurate. But Hebrews 2, verse 12, confirms it. It explains this. Both the one who makes people holy, talking of Jesus, and those who are made holy, talking of Christians, are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Isn't that wonderful? That the eternal one who created the universe and is holding it all together is prepared to say, Lorraine, you're my sister, and not be ashamed of it. Graham, my brother. That's one. Is that wonderful? Is that really true? That is such grace. It's true. And then he goes on and quotes Psalm 22, 22. He says, Jesus says, says the writer here, to Hebrews, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. Again, the Bible is putting the very words of Psalm 22 into the mouth of Jesus. Fascinating. You know, as, uh, as great charismatics, spirit-filled Christians, we know a thing or two about worship. And... Uh, we can often think there's a straightforward process in our worship. We start focusing on God the Father. He's holy. He's awesome. He's, uh, he's, ho he's faithful. And then we, we worship about Jesus, the Son, and all that he's done on the cross and his resurrection and his victory. And then we get to the, the Spirit stuff. And we welcome the Holy Spirit's presence. And we begin to sense him amongst us and enjoy him and encounter him. Well, I tell you what. I think equally as valid is the other way around. As spirit-filled Christians, our worship should start in the spirit. It should be there already. We're in the spirit, aware of his presence. He's amongst us. And the spirit, of course, always directs us to Jesus. So, so next, we're, we're, we're focused on Jesus again, the cross and his victory and all that it means for us now and in the future. And then Jesus comes amongst his brothers and sisters, us. 
And it starts to lead us in worship of the Father. I think that's what this is saying. That's what Jesus is doing now. Okay, so where did that leave us? If we're not the ones singing Psalm 22, although we can sing it, that's okay. Where are we in all this? Well, I would suggest that we sing Psalm 23. It'll come up behind me. I trust in a minute. I haven't got it on the printout. But you know, you probably know it. It's the most loved, the most well-known, the most popular, possibly, of psalms there have ever been. You can go to a, a funeral even of non-Christians or nominal Christians, and they might sing this. The Lord is my shepherd, or read it out, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, etc. That's what we sing. You know, there's no comfort, though, in singing Psalm 23 for you unless you've let Jesus sing Psalm 22 for you. There's no comfort for you in singing Psalm 23, really, unless you've let Jesus sing Psalm 22 for you. Bill Moore, he leads Everyday Church in South London. In his great book, Straight to the Heart of Psalms, spots this connection so gloriously, and I'm going to quote him because you can't improve him. We can only lie down in green pastures because Jesus lay down in the dust of death. Verse 15 from 22. We can only find rest and refreshment for our souls because in verse 2 of 22, Jesus found no rest when he bore the punishment we deserve. We can only eat and drink from green pastures and quiet waters because he bore our thirst in verse 15 of 22 and because in 26, he tells us that we get to eat and drink what we don't deserve because of what he has done. We can only fear no evil in the valley of the shadow of death because Jesus has passed that way before us and defeated death before we get there. We can only dwell in the house of the Lord forever because in verse 1 of 22, Jesus was abandoned by the Father. We can only sing Psalm 23 at all because Jesus has become our blood-drenched shepherd. Hallelujah. There's a couple of applications, really. Firstly, Turn to Jesus. To receive the benefits of Jesus, it depends on your response to Jesus. Not everyone will join God's people at the feast and live forever. Although people from every type will be there. Only those, and the, and the psalm is very clear, look at verse 23, who fear the Lord and revere the Lord. Verse 26, who seek the Lord, who turn to the Lord, who bow down before him. Have you done that? Have you sought God? Have you turned to him and away from your old sin and old life and disrespect of him? And have you bowed before him? Have you submitted? Have you surrendered? Have you committed yourself to him? That's what's going to count. They're the ones who come in. They're the ones who eat and enjoy and feast forever. And for us believers, of course, Psalm 22, like the other lament psalms, are great when you feel abandoned. They really are. Use it that way, of course. And it helps us in other ways too. It gives us, like the others, permission to express our raw honesty, our anguish before God. It's just that David did it. It's been part of the linguistics of worship forever. Keep it up. But it also teaches us to pray, to evolve from our cry for help into prayers of intercession. When he breaks off into, yet you're enthroned as the Holy One, he, he's not going, oh, he's not forgotten about his pain. 
but he's applying now his faith. God, you, you, you are the awesome one. You've stepped into history when people have cried out like I'm crying out again and again and again. He's using it as a lever in his prayer for help. And then he, he goes on, and when he gets to, yet you brought me out of the womb, he's not suddenly reminiscing oh, about being born. Oh, isn't that nice? It's the, he's using his, God, you brought me into existence. I would not be here if it was not for you. There must be value. There must be purpose in my life. It's to depend on you. Well, I'm depending on you now, so come and answer my prayer. He's, he's, he's being taught by these truths in his prayer life. We're to read Psalms, of course, to find those we resonate with, but we're also to be prepared by them for life ahead and to serve others well. You know, we're more likely to respond well in situations of trauma or crisis if we've already been instructed by the Psalms. We're better able, I, I would suggest, to, and equipped to help others who feel abandoned by God, whether they're believers or unbelievers, if the content of our comfort comes from the Bible songs, not the popular songs. It'll be all right. Let's use these to comfort others on their journey towards God or in God. Wonderful. I think I'd like us to stand, that's all right at this moment. Um, remember is a common command in the Psalms, and remember me was, a com was an instruction that Jesus gave to his disciples. He said, remember me by taking bread that's been broken and taking wine that's been poured out. And in that way, you can remember me. And we feasted on Jesus' song this morning, by looking at that psalm, but we're also, as a fitting way of ending our time together, going to feast on Jesus himself by taking the bread and the wine together. So in a few moments, there'll be some movement, band will play, trays will come round. But just before that, if you could close your eyes, I'd appreciate it. I want to give an opportunity to you. If you've never turned to Jesus, as I described, and you would like to, you can do it now. So while everyone else's eyes are closed, if that is you, why don't you just pop up your hand? Just so that I know and that you know that you're making this decision today. And pray this prayer in your heart with me. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for me, for being forsaken in my place. Jesus, I turn to you now as the risen Christ, as my Savior and my Lord, and I turn away and repent of my sin, my wickedness, and Jesus, I bow to you. I surrender to you. I commit myself to following you all of my days. Now come, forgive me. Breathe your life into me and give me life eternal. In Jesus' name, amen.